Good morning. Welcome to chapel. Uh, I'm going to give you guys some good and bad news this morning. Um, what, what do you want first? The bad news first. So um, the good news and bad news is that we're going to have animals on campus a bunch over the next week. But we were supposed to have horses on campus today, and with the weather, we're pushing that back a week. So know that on Tuesday next week, there's going to be a petting zoo on campus in the evening, and on Wednesday next week, there's going to be horses. So just know you're coming back from Easter to really experience wildlife here on campus. Um, Hey, you've got an email from me that MGN applications are now live. So if you want to perform at MGN, we're looking for performers, bands, solo acts, duets, all genres of music. Here's the catch. It has to be a cover song from the last 23 years. Okay, so you have to do a song from the last 23 years. You can sign up for an audition time with your application in the Center for Student Engagement anytime before April 19th. And then finally, um, not this weekend because it's Easter. Go celebrate Easter. Next weekend, uh, we have an opportunity uh, with members from Aliquippa. We're doing a quest trip to Aliquippa, not this weekend, but next weekend, where we get to just sit and learn from those who are living out what it looks like to be faithful citizens in God's kingdom in, in the city of Aliquippa. If you don't know Aliquippa, it's about 20 minutes away and just has some really incredible roots and has some people who just love this city. Um, we're looking for about 10 students to come along with us and just sit at their feet for the week and learn. If you're interested in that, uh, look for an email from me uh, either today or tomorrow. Hey, it's, it's a little yucky outside. But that doesn't mean that we can't sit before our Lord and our Maker. So let's prepare our hearts as we move into chapel. Good morning. It's such an interesting time that we're living through. And one of the reasons uh, why the scriptures are so helpful is because the scriptures are designed for us. God has revealed himself to us for our benefit. And so if you read the scriptures, you'll find out there's not a lot of hype. The scriptures understand the human condition, the life that we lead as people living in a fallen world better than we understand it ourselves. And one of the great things about the whole of the scripture and about the Psalms is they help us know how to actually deal with conditions how to approach God with a completely realistic assessment of where we are and how to deal with ourselves. And as we read Psalm 116, 1 through 9 together this morning as we start chapel, I want you to be attentive to that. I want you to think, we need to think together about 
how we talk to ourselves about both God and ourselves, because the psalmist does this in Psalm 116. The psalmist is in distress. There's no pretense. You don't have to put on a happy face and say, everything's okay. Everything's not okay for the psalmist in Psalm 116. There's real trouble and distress. And the psalmist is recognizing this and talking to God about it because God is the one living and true God who is attentive to us and who listens. And because of God's love and faithfulness and certainty and power, then you can hear the psalmist talking and saying, well, in the, in the ordinary language, we would say, I said to myself, self, this is what, this is what the psalmist is doing. He's, this return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And so, um, let's, uh, read Psalm 116 together. Would you stand with me, uh, as we read Psalm 116 together, and then we'll be seated after the reading. Psalm 116, verses 1 to 9. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Please be seated. Well, you're in for a treat this morning. You're in for a treat. Pastor Titus really wants to preach this sermon. When we were planning for uh, who was going to speak when during this semester, he claimed this day. And he said, last year, I was all ready to preach this sermon and I wanted to do it. And then COVID hit and we got, everything blew up. And I just want you to know that when a godly pastor really wants to preach something, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> uh, so we're really looking forward to this because uh, he's, Anxious to get in the game. And we're going to hear from New Song because the, the theme of the message today is all about God's power. And Psalm 99 speaks about God's power. But what I want you to notice is it's personal. God's power is personal. It has to do with us. And there are names in this psalm. I want you to listen for the names and what God did. Because what God has done personally for people in Scripture, even big names in Scripture, he's already committed to doing for us. And so let's uh, listen together to Psalm 99, and, and then we'll continue 
with chapel. Please join me in confessing the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty.
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you by your invitation, boldly before the throne of grace. We thank you that you have made the way through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you have shed forth your spirit into our hearts and we cry, Abba, Father, this morning. You know our needs before we even ask, Father. So we bring them to you, O God, and we make them known. Right now, I lift up those that might feel overwhelmed with a lot of life situations and uh, a lot of study and uh, those that have grown weary in this time. I, I pray, God, you would draw near to them, walk alongside them, encourage them, let them know that you are near. This morning, God, we lift up those among us on our campus that are uh, facing dire situations like the, the Schindel family, oh God. We, I just pray, Lord, that you would draw near to them as they're in the hospital uh, dealing with some health concerns. We pray that you would draw near and encourage them. God, give doctors wisdom, O oh God, and just hear their cries this morning. Come to their aid, O oh God. We trust in your faithfulness in times like this, O oh God, and, and we look forward, O oh God, to, to uh, when, you, when you will act. And we thank you for this. We pray for all those that are grieving the loss of loved ones in recent times. God, we just pray that uh, your comfort would be theirs and that uh, they would look forward to being reunited with, with uh, loved ones that have gone on to be with you. Oh God, let us uh, walk these days out with joy, even though they're difficult. I pray for the leadership of the college here uh, as we go through difficult times. Oh God, give wisdom, give grace, and uh, Lord, we thank you for all the good work that happens here, and we pray that our hearts would be inclined to you and that uh, we would learn of you and that we would operate in humility, loving one another as you have loved us. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you once again. Uh, Happy Easter to you. I know you're yearning for the long weekend coming and just have a few more days to go. Uh, I hope it's a good celebration of uh, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead and that changes everything. Um, This is the last time that I have the privilege to uh, preach to you this semester, this year, this school year. And I want to thank you for the year. I know it hasn't been an easy year and more than normal. We've had various distractions that um, keep us from uh, being able to listen. Um, So it's made you have to make that choice to listen all the more. And I know you don't have uh, a say as to who preaches in chapel, and I get that, but you do have control whether or not you listen. And so uh, to all of you who have uh, fought through all those distractions over the past year, Um, and have listened, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope it's been a helpful time as we've uh, thought about who God is. As I've said many times, the most important thing about you is what you think about God, uh, because that's the most basic motivation that drives everything that you do. So as you head into Easter weekend, we're going to be considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection shows the all-powerful nature of God. God is all-powerful. So I'm going to read... You have a passage printed there from 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the word of God. May he use that to really change us and convict us and uh, uh, confirm to us the glorious resurrection of our Savior. Christianity is unique as a religion in many ways. One of the unique ways that's a, one of the ways it's unique from other religions is that it's not just a philosophy or a collection of wise sayings, uh, but rather the validity and authenticity of the Christian faith is rooted in actual historical events, things that took place at a certain time and in a certain place. And uh, among all the historical events that have happened uh, that reaffirm the Christian faith, uh, Paul identifies two single events that rise far above the rest. All of Christianity 
rests on these two events. He says that Jesus died and that he rose again, both of which are according to the scriptures, just as the Old Testament prophesies. Just as the Old Testament uh, declares. Paul goes on to say that the resurrection is actually the validation. It's the stamp of authenticity of the Christian faith. And the apostles preached the resurrection as the proof that Jesus really is the son of God and the savior of mankind. Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then uh, what we're doing here is really a waste of time or it's the most foolish thing we could do because we've all believed the biggest scam in all of history. If Jesus didn't rise, then he's no savior. We're still stuck in our sins and there is no hope because he's still dead. Without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Well, since the resurrection is so crucial to the Christian faith, it shouldn't be a surprise then that when the critics of Christianity uh, want to uh, attack the, the Christian faith, they target the resurrection because they say if they can't, if they can prove that the resurrection uh, never really happened, then they'd be able to prove that Christianity is the biggest hoax in all of history. Uh, Richard Carrier is uh, an American historian and a relatively popular speaker. Uh, he has his Ph.D. in American history from the prestigious Columbia University. Uh, Twenty years ago, he was invited to Yale University to give it a speech entitled, Why I Don't Buy the Resurrection Story. And since then, he's given this talk many times in many different places on many different occasions. And in this talk, he says, as a professional historian, I do not believe we have anywhere near sufficient evidence or reason to believe that the resurrection accounts in the gospel are real. He declares that the resurrection of Christ has no historical basis and therefore is a myth and since he has all these credentials, since he's labeled as an expert, lots of people take his opinion as fact. Well, Paul writes to the church there in Corinth uh, in part because critics like Richard Carrier are attacking the resurrection and these young Christians are beginning to doubt that the resurrection actually really happened. They're beginning, beginning to wonder if, it, if they believed a myth. And so Paul writes to them essentially saying, don't let these so-called experts shake your faith. Jesus actually physically died, and Jesus actually physically rose from the dead in victory, just as the scriptures say. What I want to do this morning is consider some of the challenges to the historicity of the resurrection, to take some time to examine the evidence, and to help you see that if you take an objective look at the historical testimony, you'll find that the evidence actually points to the reality of the resurrection. And because Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, it proves that he really is the Son of God and he is the Savior of mankind. Because Jesus rose, uh, death doesn't win, Satan has been cast out, and we are more than conquerors. Because Jesus rose, we don't have to live in fear of the future, because it means we win. Let the words of the angel fill you with great joy. He is not here, for he is risen. That changes everything. So as Paul begins defending the resurrection, he first begins by affirming his death. He wrote in verse 3, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. <clears throat> in order to prove the resurrection, you have to first uh, understand that he actually died. 
So that's where we have to start. Jesus actually physically died. One of the two most popular theories to explain away the resurrection is that Jesus never really died in the first place. He just sort of passed out there on the cross and uh, sort of came to there in the tomb. And then he came out and everyone believed, wow, he rose from the dead. But really, in fact, he just sort of fainted and then he came to in the tomb. And so to prove the resurrection, you have to first prove that Jesus actually died. How likely is it that Jesus actually died? Well, let's retrace his steps. Leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus was arrested by the Jews, condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin, um, and uh, then he was beaten by the Jewish guards. Then they sent him to Pilate, the Roman governor. They wanted Pilate, of course, to crucify him the way the Romans did their executions back then. Lots of people were executed by crucifixion. Pilate handed Jesus over to the Roman guards who also beat him, uh, but it's historically verified that they took their beatings to a whole new level. They beat him with whips, which ripped into his head and into his back. Um, It was actually a preparation for his crucifixion. Uh, They would beat their victims so badly so that they wouldn't last as long in the cross. We, of course, don't know exactly how badly Jesus was beaten, um, but there's one historian who lived in the third century, which is while the Romans still ruled the world, by the way, He said that the Romans beat their victims so badly sometimes that they died before they were actually crucified. And he wrote that their muscles, their tendons, their bones, even their intestines were exposed through these vicious beatings. We all know that Jesus wasn't beaten to death, but he was beaten so badly that he wasn't actually able to carry his own cross through the city. And at one point he crumbled under the weight of the cross and they had to get a man from the crowd to carry it for him. When they arrived there outside the city, they crucified him. They pounded stakes through his wrists and through his feet. And um, apart, we're not going to get into all the the pain of hanging on a cross. But when you hang on the cross, uh, you bear your weight so awkwardly on the cross as you're hanging from your arms that you have to be able to pull up, pull yourself up in order to breathe, to to gulp in some air and then rest again. The weight of your body hanging on your arms. What that means then is that you have to be actively um, gulping air in order to survive the cross, Um, which means that if you just pass out on the cross, um, you will die because of lack of oxygen. So people died from the cross by suffocating to death. Uh, You passed out. And when you passed out, you didn't move. And when you didn't move, you couldn't breathe. And that's how they died. That's why in the afternoon, the guards uh, went around to these three crucified victims and they went to break their legs on the cross so that they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. And as a result, they would die much quicker because they wouldn't be able to breathe as well. And so when they came to Jesus, they saw that he had already died. And so instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side. Again, when you read historical accounts of a crucifixion, uh, which the Romans did regularly throughout their hundreds of years of reign, um, they, uh, the, the piercing, um, they did this regularly in order to confirm that someone was actually dead. This wasn't just like, you know, a little nudge to see if he moves, like, you know, the way someone might, might uh, 
elbow you if you're, you're asleep in class or asleep in chapel. Might elbow you. That's, that wasn't the idea here. But uh, they, uh, they were um, down below, so they would take their spear and they would drive the spear up uh, under your rib cage and into across your abdomen. And so it would pierce uh, many of your vital organs, namely your lungs and, or your heart. Uh, most of the time, it would pierce both your lungs and your heart. And that would not just confirm that someone was dead, but it would also guarantee that if they weren't quite yet dead, that would seal the deal. When they did this to Jesus, outflowed blood and water. Um, the water likely came from fluid buildup either in his lungs or around his heart. Um, and so the, the soldiers likely peered, pierced both his lungs and his heart. Um, and so blood and water flowed out. After they took him down from the cross, Pilate himself confirmed that he was dead. They wrapped him in bandages, embalmed him. Um, they, they set him in a cave uh, for a tomb and then rolled a stone, uh, which probably weighed, weighed around a ton on top of that um, uh, opening. And uh, then they placed guards in front of it. Well, the trauma of crucifixion is so well documented that the fainting theory is really just uh, unbelievable. Uh, ludicrous, really. No one would survive that. But let's say that someone did survive that. And 36 hours later, so he's buried uh, Friday afternoon and then uh, was resurrected Sunday morning. Um, so that's really just 36 hours, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He still counted as three days, but only 36 hours. Jesus, after all that, would he be well enough to get up, move 2,000 pound rock out of the way, uh, elude professional guards, walk seven miles to Emmaus, appear to more than 500 people as if nothing happened 36 hours earlier. And so to believe that Jesus just fainted ignores the historical accounts, not just of the Bible, but of all the historians who knew anything about crucifixion. There is no way that he just passed out and then came to in the tomb and act as if, it is, as if nothing happened. Jesus actually physically died. But now, did he actually rise? Uh, the first evidence to examine is the empty tomb. Uh, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, early in the morning, some women went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty, and the stone was rolled away. And uh, at that time, that was a verifiable reality. So if I, I said that my house burned down last night, uh, you could actually go there and see if my house was still standing. You'd go there and you'd see, actually, it's still standing, so it didn't bear, burn down. He was just lying. Uh, so this was a verifiable reality. You could go to the tomb and see that it was empty yourself. Uh, another theory to, to try to explain a re the resurrection is that uh, they think that the people just sort of got mixed up. Uh, they, they went to the wrong tomb. They went to this empty tomb that was just being prepared for some, someone's burial. And, uh, and, and so they didn't go to the right tomb. And that's why they think that Jesus rose from the dead. And you think, that's a, is that a likely mistake? Uh, here's the well, most well-known man in all of Judea and uh, Samaria and, and uh, Galilee and um, his family, his disciples, the Roman guards, did they all really get the wrong tomb? That is just so hard to believe. Uh, the death of Jesus was the largest event in Jerusalem. Crowds had welcomed Jesus just 
uh, a week earlier into Jerusalem, uh, uh, praising him, singing hallelujah. And then four days later, they were sh- chanting crucify him. And so uh, they scoffed as he hung on the cross. And when he was buried, people knew that they knew where his tomb was. So much hung on his death that they knew where his tomb was. It wasn't just uh, some nobody who was being buried somewhere. But here, uh, those women came to the tomb. The tomb was now empty. And uh, most of the critics of Christianity um, admit that the tomb was empty. Uh, the historians who are not Christians, are they acknowledge that the tomb was empty. Um, but uh, the question that they then raise is, well, the disciples must have broken into the tomb and taken the body and preached uh, the false message of the resurrection. That's really the second largest uh, criticism of uh, or explanation of the, the resurrection account. The di- disciples just made it all up. Well, if the disciples stole the body and pretended that he rose from the dead, we're giving them quite a bit of credit. Uh, the disciples were uneducated nobodies. Um, they never seemed to quite get it when Jesus was with them, even at times of clarity when they confessed their belief in Jesus as the Christ, the son of God, they still didn't understand anything about the resurrection. And so when Jesus was arrested, the disciples scattered. Um, They denied knowing him. Peter went back to fishing. Um, In order for the the disciples to really come to this um, agreement, they would have to have been rallied into action after his crucifixion. But the truth is that it was just the opposite. They all scattered, went back to their homes, took up their old jobs. But let's say that they did actually orchestrate this great plan. And 36 hours after um, this crucifixion, they uh, carried out the greatest heist in all of history. They outsmarted the guards. They rolled the stone away. They stole the body. They stashed it somewhere unnoticed by everyone in the city where it could never, ever, ever be found again. And then they made up this resurrection story. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that they could do all that. Why? Would they do it? Their leader had just been crucified. Why would they? Uh, why would they make up this story about the resurrection? Maybe to save face. Maybe because they're embarrassed that they'd followed the wrong guy. Maybe. But do you recognize the kind of trouble that they faced when they preached the resurrection? All of them were persecuted. All of them tortured. Almost all of them executed in agonizing ways. They didn't become rich or popular or powerful because of this so-called lie. If it were something that they just made up and it made their lives miserable, you'd have to ask, why would they stick to the story? It doesn't make sense to die for something you just made up if it didn't get you anything. Besides that, one of the greatest evidences that the disciples didn't steal the body and, and make up the story is because the death and resurrection um, of Christ was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is not a new idea. So the disciples didn't um, see that Jesus was crucified and then think, okay, how could we cover this up really quickly? Uh, oh, let's steal his body and say that he rose from the dead. Well, there were prophecies uh, that are all throughout the Old Testament that speak of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, one of the most popular ones is uh, most uh, 
well-known ones is from Psalm 16. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption or decay. Uh, This was quoted by the apostle Peter in the sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost. And he said that these words couldn't be true of David because he's dead. His tomb is still there and they know where uh, David had been buried. But this has to speak of Jesus Christ, his descendant, who was given over to the grave, but whose body never saw decay because he rose from the dead. Psalm 16 was written by David a thousand years before Jesus rose from the dead. And there are a whole lot of other prophecies that we could talk about that we don't have time to right now. We could go on and on and on and talk about the references to resurrection in the scriptures. And even at times, Jesus himself said that I was, he was going to have to die and then rise again. But they didn't believe it until after it all happened. Then they understood how the prophecies spoke of Jesus. This whole hypothesis that the disciples stole the body and made up the story of of the resurrection on the spot. When you think about everything that's involved there, it's simply not a viable explanation. Uh, Chuck Colson was involved in the biggest political scandal of the last century, uh, the scandal of Watergate. And he ended up spending uh, some months in prison for his role in Watergate. And the way Watergate worked out is that... uh, um, Chuck Colson and some of his cronies, they had broken into um, the, op- the opposition's uh, campaign headquarters and stole some information. But they tried to cover it up. And uh, as Chuck Colson reflects on this, he said, um, when he became a Christian, he said, uh, the resurrection is true and Watergate proves it. And he says this, he says, Uh, we had the 12 most powerful men in the country who we were trying to tell this lie to the world. And these 12 most powerful men couldn't keep this secret for more than three weeks. You're telling me that 12 uneducated disciples came up with this plot to steal the body of Jesus and then keep that a secret for the rest of their lives and have that body never be found. To use that as an explanation is absolutely ludicrous, proven by Watergate scandal. The resurrection is true and Watergate proves it. When you think about the disciples, the the change that took place in them after the resurrection, it was incredible. They were uneducated, blue-collar workers. They they, um, scattered after Jesus um, was arrested. They denied it, that they ever knew him. But when Jesus appeared to them, they grew into giants. They weren't afraid of anything. They knew that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. They knew that no man could really do anything to them of consequence. And so they were willing to be tortured and crucified and killed and executed in heinous ways because they knew that they were dead and their lives were hidden in Christ. They knew the hope of glory. They knew the victory of the kingdom. They knew the return of the Savior. That's what made them giants in the faith, not some lie they made up. There is no other way to explain the long-lasting change uh, that carried these men through those places of execution. They rejoiced in their persecution. They considered it a joy to suffer for the name of Christ. This change in the disciples is really a validating proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead. 
verified by historians, these scared disciples turned into courageous apostles. So Jesus really did die. The tomb really was empty. The disciples didn't make it up. And the fourth and last thing to consider is that it was verified by hundreds of people. Paul says that Jesus uh, appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. They saw him in bodily form. That's when Thomas touched his body and put his hand in his side, which, of course, wasn't all scabbed up. He wasn't just hobbling around. But he was healed, still had the marks of his suffering, but he was healed fully. An impossibility if he escaped, fainted and escaped. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at the same time. It appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who knew him best. He grew up with Jesus. He would have been able to tell if there was an imposter. And then he appeared again to the, to the disciples. And then, last of all, he appeared to Paul himself. How many eyewitnesses does it take to verify a, a, a story or, or, or be a witness in a court case? Well, according to the Bible, it takes two or three eyewitnesses. Paul says there are over 500 people who saw Jesus, people who are still alive and you could talk to them. They had the opportunity to validate it with hundreds of people. It's easy for one person to make it up, but for 500 people to have experiences of interacting with the resurrected Lord, there's no way. Some people think that that, um, someone impersonated Jesus and of course... Uh, the disciples, his brothers, his family, they all knew him so well. How could someone really impersonate him and, and actually carry it out? It's, um, it's impossible. Jesus really died. The tomb really was empty. The disciples were really changed. The eyewitnesses are compelling. And, of course, you can come up with unlimited theories as to what might have actually happened Um, But when you actually take a look at the evidence, it points to the reality that Jesus actually died and Jesus actually rose from the dead, just as the Old Testament declares. So as you go along in your Christian faith, don't let the likes of Richard Carrier cause you to doubt your faith, but to actually strengthen your faith. So that as he and they ask questions, you can actually examine the evidence and test it because the evidence speaks for itself. In closing, I want to tell you about one more skeptic who targeted the resurrection. This man's name was Simon Greenleaf. He was born in the late 1700s. He was a lawyer by trade, and he was rather successful. He was uh, appointed to serve on the Supreme Court of the state of Maine. So he was a justice of the Supreme Court in Maine. Harvard University eventually convinced him to come and teach at their Harvard Law School. Uh, He eventually became dean of that law school, and he took that school to new heights. And it was during his time there at Harvard that he wrote wrote the, uh, apparently, the legal masterpiece called um, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. And apparently, I'm not a lawyer, I haven't been to law school, but apparently this remains a classic today, still today, studied by all students of law, and it is regarded, uh, I quote, as the greatest single authority in the entire literature of legal procedure. It's quite a claim. You understand who this guy is? So so Greenleaf, he specialized in validating evidence. What passes as legitimate evidence in a court? Well, in the midst of all this, Greenleaf was an atheist. He was a bold skeptic of the resurrection. 
uh, declaring it to be a myth. And one day in his lecture, he stated in his class, uh, stated to his class that the re- resurrection of Christ was a legend. And in response to his assertion, three of his law students challenged him to apply his own highly acclaimed rules of evidence to the resurrection account. And Greenleaf accepted this challenge and he began to investigate the evidence and he focused on the facts of history to prove the resurrection, uh, uh, that the resurrection account was false. But as he investigated, the more he found, the more he was stunned at how powerful the evidence is supporting the claim that Jesus indeed rose from the tomb. He was unable to explain Uh, several dramatic changes that took place shortly after Jesus died. Most baffling was the behavior of the disciples, how they changed from scattered cowards to bold proclaimers of the resurrection. And it wasn't just one or two disciples who insisted that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they all consistently made this claim. Not one of them recanted their story. And so by applying his own rules of evidence, which still remain a classic in our law practices today, he came to the verdict that the resurrection is actually the best explanation for the events that took place immediately after the crucifixion. And Greenleaf was so persuaded by the evidence that he became a a committed Christian. And he believed that any unbiased person who honestly examines the evidence will conclude as he did that Jesus Christ has truly risen. He wrote a book where he documents all the evidence that he found that caused him to change his mind. And in the conclusion of the book, he gives this simple challenge. If you seek the truth, fairly examine the evidence. Your faith, my faith, our faith, it hinges on two historical events the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus really actually physically died and he really actually physically rose from the dead. And because this is true, the only valid conclusion is that he's the eternal son of God, the only savior of mankind. And if you put your hope in him, you will not be disappointed. Because he rose from the dead, death will not win. Satan is dying. You're more than conquerors. You've been set free. And if the son has set you free, you'll be free indeed. So as you reflect particularly on the resurrection this weekend, let the words of the angel fill you with great joy. This is not a myth. But you declare with confidence, he is not here. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that through your resurrection, you have proven to be the son of God, the only savior. We thank you for the hope and the life that we enjoy now because of the resurrection. And we look forward to that day when you make all things new, when you come again in glory and our bodies and souls are resurrected and made glorious and new. Let the reality of your resurrection change everything about us. Let it change us from scattered cowards to bold giants of the faith. We thank you, Jesus, that you died according to the scriptures, that you rose again according to the scriptures. And we declare that to the world. And so we bow to you, our risen King and our Savior. And in your name we pray. Amen.